So tonight we're going to uh, look at steps 10 and 11. And, um, you know, I, the way I kind of divided up, I think that my vo- voice is a little strong. Maybe you can bring it down a bit. Um, when I wrote One Breath at a Time, I just wanted to create a little bit of structure in the book, and so um, I created three parts, right? Put part steps one, two, and three as the surrender, and there's kind of an introduction then to that section, and then this steps four through nine are called um, investigation and responsibility. Uh, the inventory and making amends. And then steps 10 through 12 I call fulfillment. These days I think of them more as maintenance, uh, but fulfillment's maybe a little more uplifting. It's a nice, nice idea. I think, it, I think both of those terms are true and are both uh, useful uh, viewpoints. But I think that we are really, as we go through the steps, this is a, a really um, a clear shift in terms of the perspective of the 12 steps, that, that up to now, and particularly in 4 through 9, writing the inventory and making amends, we're, we're um, very much engaged in a, a stuff that needs to be done kind of in order and... Um, in kind of uh, a contained period of time, something that isn't sort of just too open-ended. But when we get to step 10, and where it says continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, we're really stepping into more the long-term recovery process. And, um, you know, step 11... It says, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Sorry to do it so quickly, but um, there's also a sense of uh, continuity in there. It's not something that we just do once, like making amends. Once you make amends to a particular person, you're not going to go back and make amends to them again, but um, unless you do something else. Uh, but, um, you know, the, of course, prayer and meditation are something that we're going to be doing on an ongoing basis. Um, and step 12 uh, in the same way. So I think it is useful to think of these steps as, a, as another and, uh, uh, part of the process and, and as being um, uh, three steps that go together. Uh, We'll, we'll cover step 12 next week. Uh, there, there's a great um, Zen expression called the long-enduring mind. Uh, and it's a, that's a phrase I really like because it, it really speaks <coughs> to the kind of attitude that we need to have in our practice as meditators, and that we need to have in our recovery. And it's so antithetical to kind of the uh, short enduring mind that uh, addicts have the, the uh, short-term attention and the instant gratification that we demand. 
that um, the idea of of really sticking with something uh, uh, through thick and thin, whether it's a spiritual practice, whether it's a recovery program, whether it's a relationship, um, whether it's a job uh, or a project. Something that I think that kind of uh, continuity and uh, patience, determination, enduring uh, or endurance is something that's uh, I know for me as as an alcoholic and addict was very difficult, and I really lacked that quality, and it and it really showed in terms of how my life progressed or didn't progress uh, up into my 30s. Now, I don't know if you can learn to have a long, enduring mind, uh, or if there's anything anyone can say to give you that. But I do think that the, that the, the concept of one day at a time is actually talking about that. Uh, it's the, it's what makes the long enduring mind possible to realize that I only have to show up today and do this today. And that it's by enduring one day at a time that eventually the real changes happen. Uh, Of course, it's pointless to think, oh, well, I have to endure 10 years before... If I have to endure 20 years, I have to, that's, that's not a helpful view. Um, but I will say from, from my view, <laughs> at the, at an, at, uh, not the end, but at, <coughs> at sort of having endured for a long time, both in my practice and especially in my recovery, um, there's something uh, affirming for me about, about how I live and how I have lived, to know, to look back at uh, the years of recovery and all the challenges and difficulties and th- that I've gotten through. Uh, I won't say that I've conquered, but that I have endured. Uh, and I think uh, we all have to endure <laughs> in life. Uh, the question is whether it's going to be enduring something in a skillful way, in a, in a useful way. Life is going to be difficult whether we're uh, in recovery or not, but, um, but there's something about the, I will say, the karmic consequences of maintaining our recovery uh, and practicing these principles in all our affairs, as Step 12 says, and continuing to take personal inventory and continuing to seek uh, you know, to improve our conscious contact uh, that really um, that, uh, brings about incredible, incredible change. And I know many of you here have had that experience. So, to some extent, preaching to the choir. But I hope I'm also preaching to people who are, uh, you know, new to the choir, and you can be motiv- hopefully, hopefully motivated. I'm uh, 
actually celebrating it. I don't know if celebrating is quite the right word, but I'm enduring <laughs> a natal birthday today. So um, one tends to reflect. Um, my wife is uh, having a writing retreat out in Bolinas with a couple of friends. And uh, so uh, she invited me out, which was generous of her for the day, because she's really trying to focus on her work. But I went out this afternoon. And, but driving out, when I turned left at, um, I guess it's Route 1, when you get there to Alima, I'm going by the Vedanta retreat. 31 years ago, I was uh, traveling on faith. Uh, that is to say, I was, had no money, and I was hitchhiking around Northern California under the uh, guidance of a, uh, an unusual spiritual teacher <clears throat> uh, who I talk about in One Breath at a Time. And, uh, and I wound up at the Vedanta. I walked in there and just was like, oh, I'm traveling on faith. Can I stay here? I stayed there for a few days. So just going by there was a reminder of what a long, strange trip this has been. Uh, speaking of which, also going past Forest Knowles and knowing that Jerry Garcia died there, uh, who couldn't, you know, couldn't find this, uh, this way of recovery. So... Um, yeah, uh, you know, I was really lost when I was at the Vedanta Center. I, I thought I was on a path, but uh, it was uh, not a way that was going to get me very far. And uh, it was still another three years after that before I got sober. So um, I guess I'm just reflecting back because of, you know, my birthday, but... Uh, just interesting to see where we've been, and, and obviously uh, it is useful at times to reflect back and see the progress. And as the Dalai Lama says, don't, I think I've said this to you guys, that I say it pretty often, that we shouldn't uh, try to judge the, our progress as meditators, but if we must, we should only look back over maybe 10 years to see if we've progressed in our practice. And I, I think the same is true of recovery. You know, five years, maybe five or ten years. Because uh, if we're judging it on how was I last month or how was I last week or how am I today, uh, we're not going to have a very good perspective. So I, I didn't know I was going to say all that tonight. But. <coughs> I have a little bit of, uh, I don't know if any of you guys get this, but uh, I suspect you do, um, daylight savings lag. Yeah, there's, it's not jet lag exactly, but uh, that loss of an hour, t so I'm a little tired this week, so, um, so maybe I'm cranking myself up here so I don't start snoring during the meditation. So last week we did some forgiveness practice and some loving-kindness practice. I hope that uh, you've tried some of that this week. Uh, I think it's really important to integrate some of those practices, some of the either forgiveness or compassion or loving-kindness, into our daily practice. 
Uh, and some people find that's the mo for them it's the most useful practice to do all the time, which is great. I, I usually do several minutes of loving kindness at the end of my sittings. Um, it's really helpful to tap into that place because just sitting uh, and doing, following the breath and watching your thoughts obviously has tremendous value. But sometimes just coming into the heart kind of just, uh, in a way it's coming back to reality in a certain sense. Um, but it's also that, that idea of not just meditating for me, but meditating for those I care about and thinking about them and reflecting on them. I also find it really useful to reflect on people that you know who are suffering. This is not an original concept at all, certainly something that all religions pray for, pray for the sick, pray for the, those who have, are having difficulties. But um, uh, to do those kind of reflections helps me to feel close to people. And it also kind of lets me know where I'm at in a certain way. It kind of when I check in and I try to send loving kindness, I kind of see how open I am today. And just recognize it, not to judge it, but just say, oh, that's where I'm at right now. Um, you know, uh, having a variety of tools, you know, the toolbox that we talk about in the 12-step world, I think it's so useful to not kind of feel like you're just dependent on, oh, this is how I have to meditate all the time, but to kind of have other ways that you can draw on. Uh, I think that's really important to sustaining that your practice. So... So if there are no thoughts or concerns, let's proceed with the meditation. Settling into a comfortable posture. Beginning by bringing the attention into your body. Just feeling yourself sitting. What part of your body calls your attention? There may be some discomfort or some pleasant sensation. There may be some energetic feeling, some feeling of heaviness or lightness, tingling, pulsing, heat, tightness. There may be all kinds of feelings in the body. And just relaxing the shoulders, letting the belly be soft. Just releasing any tension 
feeling the pull of the earth, creating the feeling of weight in the body. Just acknowledging anything you've brought with you today, any lingering emotions, thoughts, worries. (coughs) Just seeing what your general mood is. And then connecting with the breath. You might start by feeling the whole body breathing. And then beginning to narrow the focus to the point in the body where you usually follow the breath, whether the nostrils or the belly or somewhere else. Just feeling the breath as sensation. Not thinking about the breath. Not trying to control the breath. Just feeling what an in-breath feels like, what an out-breath feels like. And noticing when the attention wanders. Where does your mind tend to go?
what are your current obsessions? What are the themes that run through your life and appear in your thoughts? Just noticing and then coming back once again to the sensations of breath. As you sit and try to stay with the breath, 
and track your energy as well. So if you're very restless, just maybe take some deep breaths and relax. Try to keep the attention in the body. If you're sleepy, you might open your eyes or sit up straighter. There's nothing to accomplish right now. We're just practicing being.
you get lost or confused, just come back to the breath. Connect with the body again.
Sometimes it seems as though we need a long, enduring mind just to make it through this period of meditation. This can be an opportunity if we're having difficulty to just endure, to just sit through it, whatever is coming up. Maybe even to open to or surrender to that difficulty, whether it's physical or mental,
Any uh, questions or thoughts about practice this evening? Or anything else that's on your mind? Yeah. I certainly don't uh, um, subscribe to any anything like that. Uh, it's just, you know, uh, I think it's sort of assumed that you're breathing through your nose in and out when giving instructions, unless you're congested, and then you just do what you have to do. But uh, yeah, it's not like like a yoga practice or some uh, energy practice that's trying to manipulate the breath in any way. Uh, and, th- and there's certainly value in practices like that. But for <laughs> mindfulness meditation, we're really trying to just let the body breathe as it wants to and pay attention to that. Not very on, but the green light should be on it. But it's on. Okay. Anyway, sinking mind. Um, that was a huge transformation for me in my meditation. Um, mm-hmm. That I thought that's where I wanted to go, was uh-huh. that place, and then yes. here I was conking out, but feeling that I was present. Yeah. So mm. when you mentioned having bringing energy up through the body and that you want to be in that static place of not not in that place. Mm-hmm. But I love that you said as an addict that's where we think is the place. Yeah. So yeah. Good. Um, that, that's just been helpful. And so now when I meditate, uh, being aware of where I am energetically, mm-hmm. um, it, this was probably the best meditation yet because oh. I would pull up energy through the soles of my feet when I feel I was sinking. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Before I just follow it. Yeah. Down. Sink so, down, yeah. yeah. So thank you. Good. Great. Yeah, uh, thank, I'm glad that was helpful. You turned me up, actually, but uh, so, uh, it's all right, Max. <laughs> We're going to cut back on your non-pay. <laughs> yeah, it'll be. Yeah. Part of your birthday celebration. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 that's, I mean, everything you said, I think it's just true. I second what you're saying. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, that that kind of experience is very kind of pleasant and can be alluring. And, and many people do kind of get, think like, oh, this is, it seems like I'm really in a quiet place. And, and, and it's different from a clear, quiet place or a clean, well-lighted place. Anyway, um, don't you think as you move forward in your sobriety, 
Like that was perfect for me. Yeah. And, and it replaced the drugs and alcohol. Now, right. further in, I'm ready to be a little more present. Yeah. So yeah. It wasn't like wrong where I was. No. And, you know, when I teach in treatment centers, if people fall asleep, I don't really get on their case. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, that's what you need to do right now. You probably need a lot of sleep, so rest. Uh, but yeah, in terms of uh, really exploring mindfulness and trying to cultivate that kind of clarity, after a while we have to really look at that. And, and one, of the, one of the ways to practice is just what you're describing, which is to kind of pay attention at least uh, check in with your energy uh, and see how, see how that is. Because um, it it's another way of kind of um, viewing your experience because m- thoughts are also energetic in a way as well. And it ha- it's another way of kind of depersonalizing what's happening. Emotions are kind of energy. Thoughts are kind of expressions of energy. So sometimes you just like checking, oh, this is like, I'm, I'm on this energetic plane, and so that's why I'm having these thoughts and these emotions and these physical s- sensations. They're all part of the package of this energetic style or, or area or plane that we're on. And, and yeah, I mean, we can make some effort to control that, but to a great extent we don't control it. I mean, I, I'm just sleepy tonight, you know, and I mean, it's like I was just meditating, I was going... This is really long. This is really, you know, I could ring the bell. Nobody could, you know, hey, we can have a 15-minute meditation. This, but, um, yeah, and it's like, I can't really make that go away. You know, maybe a cup of coffee or a run around the block. But, uh, no, and so, so you, you, you work with it, but only within the parameters that, we're, we're, that we can. We can't control it. Uh, Interesting along that line, though, was that uh, I spent some time with uh, Tibetan Buddhists, and they have actually some blocks that they do to mm-hmm. help energize, you know, tongue tongue below teeth, yeah, and uh, eyes partially open, mm-hmm. and breathing through the mouth as well as the nose. Uh-huh. I sort of found myself doing those automatically. Yeah, like, that's worked before. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's fine to use tools like that as long as it's not expecting, first of all, trying to control and be, or ad- aversiveness or, or you know, trying to make something happen. But yeah, just some skillful means to cultivate a kind of balance and, uh, you know, things that are useful for you, things that work for you, that's great. You know, generally, mindfulness meditation teachers avoid trying to teach things like that because of people's habitual tendency to try to control, and we're trying to break that habit. It doesn't mean that we can't be involved in an effort, but that we're trying to help people to move more into a place of just accepting and observing, because that's the underutilized skill, generally speaking. We're pretty good at like trying to make things happen, but, but when it's something that you've developed and that you've worked with, you know, it's... That's great to to have those tools. I I don't have a a lot of stuff like that. Uh, I open my eyes when I when I'm sleepy for sure. Um, but yeah.
Yes. Um, as the mother of an addict that um, it's escalated in the last month, this practice has just been invaluable. And it helps me actually um, cultivate emotional sobriety. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, it's very hard to observe and accept. Yeah. So talk about how that work, how you see that happening, how you see this helping you to cultivate emotional sobriety. Well, I think, um, I, I think it was here that I heard the quote from Victor Frankl, mm-hmm. in between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm-hmm. And in that space is power to choose our response. Mm -hmm. And I can say that in the last five years in reaction to addiction, that has not been my practice. And um, to me, it is like being awake and meditating, Mm -hmm. just kind of having it, hearing it, seeing it, feeling it. Yeah. And then to remember to breathe mm-hmm. and to be still. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's great. That's beautiful. And, uh, and you're talking about something that, you know, in B- Buddhist terms, a couple of things uh, can be uh, compared to that or, or the, that you're describing. One is that where the Buddha says that, you know, every experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that's the stimulus. And that the tendency is that when there's a pleasant experience, that it, uh, the response is craving. When there's an unpleasant experience, the response is aversion. When there's a neutral experience, the response is delusion or conf- the un- lack of awareness. Uh, and he says that the exact same thing, that in that space between what's called feeling Vedana in the Pali language, the the stimulus and the arising of desire or aversion, that's the place where we have the opportunity for freedom uh, so that we don't let that experience result in that response. And, And it's the exact same thing you're describing from Viktor Frankl, that there's another term or expression called guarding the senses that the Buddha uses. And, um, and this is sometimes misunderstood where there are some monks who will actually not look at women, for instance, or the, you know, they have these fans that they'll put up in front so they won't, won't look at things. That, and that's, that's an overly literal understanding of guarding the senses because you can't stop things coming in from the senses, but guarding the senses means the same thing, that you notice the impact of a sense experience, and that can include thoughts and emotions. You notice the impact, and then you don't react to it, because when you see it as just energy or stimulus or Vedana feeling, then 
you don't have to buy into it anymore. It's that that's same idea, and it's the, really the critical place for practice, and it's the critical place for recovery, uh, because it's the same thing that happens when the thought or the feeling or the wish for getting high or trying to fix or getting caught up in someone else's story or their struggle. And, uh, oh, wow, this is how that feels, oh. And then it's that reference back on yourself, oh, this is what I'm experiencing. And, and ultimately what that means is that we have a choice in that moment, again, what you're saying, that that's when we have the option to not act out of our conditioned response. And we, this is where we actually break and decondition these habit patterns. Uh, and this is really the, the, the karmic work that we're doing to heal ourselves. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, especially with a situation like that where um, there's just no, there's nothing good about it, you know? <laughs> and the powerlessness is so clear that, uh, you know, all you can do is not fall into the black hole, you know, or fall into the enabling behavior, uh, you know, and just and the only way you're going to do that is, as you say, by just seeing it come up, breathe. Okay, there it is. Oh. It's tough. I really wish you well with that work, and wish your child well as well. Yeah. Hello. Kevin, in your book, One Breath at a Time, uh, you wrote um, one, of the, one of the places that's most useful to practice metta or loving kindness is in 12-step meetings. Here we often find ourselves reacting to the sharing of others. When meeting, um, do you find it helpful to use the mindfulness practice of noticing one's thoughts then when negative judgments come up, practicing formal metta, repeating phrases to yourself or simply taking a breath? You know, I, I, you know, you go to meetings, I go to meetings a lot, and, you know, you run across people that you've heard before, you know, and so I, I found myself practicing this, mm. because, you know, you, you're around for so long, and you hear so many people, and, and yeah. it's like, it's not, it's not like I'm tuning them out, it's just that, you know, I can concentrate on what... There's varying levels of wisdom and usefulness <laughs> that come out of people's mouths, and yeah, to have some other way of relating to it than getting pissed off or uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Hmm. Nice to have already written it. <laughs> so there's chocolate cake. Thanks to Nancy. Nancy, why don't you just... Well, you, everybody knows Nancy because she's at the door. What? So, um, so to celebrate... Uh, and and uh, actually, if there's anybody here who has a food... Uh, is in a food pro- program and that's not appropriate, I hope this isn't a, you know, a problem or um, you know, stimulate the craving. I apologize if that's the case. I didn't sanction this. It was brought to me. <laughs> I, th- I thank you for your intention. And so uh, let's take a break and eat or not eat chocolate cake. Thank you. We'll-
flat one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.